Is that metronome again? Why? Tell that metronome to go get a home. That's not this one. This is Weekend at Bergie's numero 30. Tell your uncle and your aunt. Weekend at Bergie's 30. Back in the room, Halifax to Edmonton, yeah, Saskatoon to Calgary, Hamilton, Montreal, Vancouver out west taking cabs because you can't Uber. Coast to coast, I love to meet people. Since we last spoke, they made weed legal. At least in Canada, where I've been on tour, my lines take shape like a contour. Across the pond, sure, if you're in England, we're bergs available for you to be bringing, rhyme slinging, like straps on your backpack. Love to start my podcast with some fat raps, that's fact. Like Kingston and Ottawa shows with Timbuktu, you really should have oughta saw. I never bought a saw, uh, I would have, but I don't really have any wood to cut. Yep, the talking's gonna start soon. Uh, have you seen the Castlevania cartoon? It's really dope, but I may be biased because I think Symphony of the Night is the flyest on the PlayStation Classic. Uh, it's actually not on the new one, so you have to hack it. Shout my people from here to Newfoundland, keeping it fresh like wrestling in New Japan. Uh, a new banana or any produce? Yo, I got love for all of yous. Today my guest is my best pal, Arlex, so get ready. Our chat's about to start next. Ah, oh, yes. And you are sensational. This is episode 30 of Weekend at Bergies. I'm SJ the Word Burglar. I have been on tour for the past few months, really, with a couple uh, little breaks here and there, a bit of uh, repose, repa, repose and repa. That's really what R&R stands for. Some sleeping and some eating. Repa, oui, oui, c'est bon. Uh, I was just in Montreal, had an amazing time. This is dropping before I'm going to London, uh, Ontario, December 7th. It's a free show at the Rec Room in, Lo- in London. I really hope you can be there. Timbuktu is going to be there. It's going to be amazing. Like I say, honestly, you are sensational. From the bottom of my heart, thank you to everyone who has been supporting the new album, uh, sharing it with their friends, coming to shows, and bringing those friends out to the shows. And I have to say, myself, that's who is speaking me. Um, <laughs> I appreciate you all so much. And in meeting you and, and all those friends that you convinced to come to the shows across the country, it's just been an incredible and inspiring and unforgettable experience. And I really, really hope to get back and see all of you again uh, before too long. And I know it's just a small pocket of your entertainment sphere that uh, I'm operating in. Uh, but I am genuinely thankful and honored that you want to spend any of that time with me in your ears. So thank you. Thank you for all the fun and the energy and the encouragement that you have brought. And like I tell people all the time, honestly, one of the best parts about making and creating stuff and putting it out into the world is sharing it with strangers. And then when those strangers come back to you and talk to you and discuss things that that may have hit them a certain way or, or stuff they picked up on, stuff you picked up on. I mean, that's the best part. I, bonding with people and strangers and, and learning and, and finding out new things. This happened to me when I was in Edmonton, Alberta. After a show, a guy came up to me and started talking to me about Johnson's video in Scarborough, Ontario. Sandhurst Circle, the video store doesn't exist anymore. I shouted out at the end of the song, Rental Patient, on the new album. And it's a throwaway line, and it's real. You know, if it rhymes, it's real. 
And I mentioned Johnson's video, and the guy, we're talking about Johnson's video, it was just incredible to me that he knew what Johnson's video was and, and that someone remembers it. Because this was a video store that I used to go all the time, and you, you listen to the song, but it was, it was a real store, and there was a guy there who had this long fingernail. And if you meet anyone who remembers this store, you, they might remember this guy. So we used to work, at, and my cousins used to always say, oh, that's, that's for cocaine, he's got a coke fingernail. I, I didn't know what that was. I still don't really quite get it. Why you, you know, I guess you just scoop cocaine in your fingernail and you, and you sniff it easier. So it makes sense to grow like a fingernail that's like an inch off your fingertip. Anyways, this guy had one and, and he's, he's sort of legendary. So the story that I learned while in Edmonton is that apparently this wasn't a coke fingernail. He had this fingernail to unscrew videotapes with because <laughs> I guess it was easier than having a screwdriver like what but that's that's the story that's that those are the kind of stories that that I I, I get to hear and, and it's so fantastic and if any of you are, are cre creating an artist and do stuff I know so many of you are it's just such an incredible feeling to have that bonding experience with with other people over over things and, and I'm and I'm so happy that uh, if you find anything in the work that I do that you can relate to it it's just amazing so thanks for that uh, I have been posting pics from the tour on the Instagram page if, uh, if any of you are on Instagram you can look up hashtag CDN world super tour Canadian world super tour and my Instagram is at the word burglar in case you're on there and you want to see some pictures I try and I try and keep things updated I uh, just got back from Montreal it was incredible thanks Devin Nerdstock was awesome neon rise alpha Botus. Alpha Booties, Botus, it kind of got pronounced both ways that night, but both those bands were incredible. Toronto, I'm playing at December 13th at Handlebar for the $5 rap show. That's going to be awesome with, with Swamp Thing, more or less, Peter Project. It's, $5 rap shows are always a great family night, and it's going to be really, really dope. I'm going to be going on early, probably around 10.30, and I'll be doing a full set at $5 rap show. Sometimes I just do the hosting and do a couple songs here and there, but I will be doing a full set. So if you've been holding off going to $5 rap show and you want to hear a couple extra Bergy jams, this will be a great one to attend. Uh, there are so many amazing people that I've met and spent time with during this tour, and I, I can't possibly thank and shout all of you out, but I'm going to try. <laughs> at least at least some of you, really, every one of you has been, have been such a pivotal part of uh, the success of this tour, and as an independent artist, it's so amazing to be able to call on, on people and, and friends and family and strangers to just come through and, and help me out. So thank you so much. Uh, so this whole thing would not have been possible. First of all, with my partner in crime, Mili Sashimi. Thank you. Without you, wow, all your support. You know. You know everything you do. The Edmonton crew, Kieran, oh, my brother, you did so much work. You guys heard Kieran and Touch on last episode. If you didn't, go check it out. Uh, both of them helped so much out west. I can't, you know, these people are feeding me, driving me places, making sure I'm able to do these tours, uh, picking me up at the airport, just showing me around the cities. Uh, all right, let's. Uh, Cal, Dave, 
Karen, Darren, Sean, Kevin and Kamud, Black Buffalo Records, Jesse Dangerously, Ill Jill, Disco Stew, Tom T, Thesis, Timbuktu, Beat Mason, Fresh Kills, Peter Project, Uncle Fess, More or Less, Mega Sean Hatton, DJ Irate, Doogie Howitzer, Rich O'Coin, Burgerfinger, Megan, The Nighthawks, Jenny and the Big Kitties, Dirty Sample, Francois the Fantastic, Rosmo, Clockwork Crew, Jordan and Aperture, Mr. Archive, Saucy Slick, DJ CeeLo, C... DJ CeeLo and the Liquid Sunshine crew, Kaboom Atomic, Dan Wallavik, Quilty, MC Snacks, Chaps, Rove, Chapter Thrive, Cece, and yes, one of my oldest and bestest pals in the galaxy, Alex Kennedy, aka Arlex the Robot, who coincidentally is on today's podcast. Yeah, yeah, stay tuned because coming up on this very episode, I'm electrified to have my comic book co-creator, fellow former paperboy, and lifelong super friend till the end, Alex Kennedy here, aka Arlex. Uh, we're, I know it's just going to be an awesome, hilarious, and enlightening conversation because that's that's what I get from this pal uh, for a life of friendship. That's what he always gives me. He always gives me awesome and hilarious and enlightening conversation. <laughs> That's what I've been getting out of this relationship, Alex. I'm, I, I don't know what you, you've been getting out of it, but uh, I <laughs> thank you for all that. Uh, no, but but seriously, it's, uh, it's great to have him here. Other than just being my pal and knowing all of my secrets, which I hope he doesn't reveal. Um, <laughs> uh, Alex is an incredible DJ. He's a blogger, a podcaster. Uh, he, he runs the blog with Bruce. They, uh, it's called I Die, You Die. The podcast, we have a technical. He's a comic creator in his own right. And we're going we're gonna to chat about his life as a Canadian industrial music guru and uh, our days delivering newspapers in Halifax and our earliest uh, comic book creations. Alex and I, some of you know, we used to make mini comics and stuff. And, uh, and we, we got into a, a little bit of trouble back in the day, but it was all it was all in good fun. It all just came from a place of fun and love. Uh, which, speaking of fun and love, he loves Doom Patrol, which is a comic book series from DC. And if you don't know anything about it, that's fine, because Alex is going to school us on Doom Patrol. I, I don't really even know that much about Doom Patrol. I've read some Doom Patrol in the in the, my time as a comic reader, and I've, I've learned a lot through uh, my... Oz friendship osmosis with Alex, but he's a Doom Patrol expert. And if you're uh, if you're following sort of the current landscape of comic book TV shows and movies, DC has announced that there's a Doom Patrol TV show coming soon. So this could be a good little primer for you. You know, we're trying to help you out here on the podcast, Weekend at Burger. We want you to learn at least something. Okay, so uh, he's gonna school that. And seriously, Alex and I go back to junior high, and it's just gonna be a super fun episode. Uh, and make sure you stay tuned to the end because we're going to play some jams, okay? Um, got some fun little treats to play at the end. And this was recorded in Vancouver while I was on tour there. I'm still, like I say, still bouncing around doing some touring. If some of you have been asking about the new podcast. Yes, Do You Still Like This, which I mentioned on the episode with Danny Miles, episode 28. That podcast is very much happening and very close to launching. So please, however you heard about this, whether it was on Instagram or Twitter or wordburglar.com, keep posted, keep checking that every week or so, and we, uh, I will definitely have some updates there 
for you. Because Do You Still Like This is a really fun, it's, it's a fun podcast. It's shaping up to be really cool, and it's going to be a nice uh, companion cousin podcast to this one. <laughs> I think so, and I think it's going to come out a little bit more regularly. So, uh, okay, I think without further ado, that kind of covers everything. Oh, Halifax, how could I forget? Over the holidays, I'm going to be there doing a show, Boxing Day, Wednesday, December 26th. Free show, another free show at Hop Yard on Gottagen Street. Some of you were at the Halifax Pop Explosion show we did there. It's going to be on at 4 p.m. on the 26th. So you've got time to sleep off your holiday hangover and maybe uh, get to work on a new one. Maybe. <laughs> wear, your, uh, wear your best holiday sweater. Why? I think we're going to do that for some reason. We want to do that. So you can come out. You can wear your holiday sweater. It's all ages. You can bring the family. Bring your kids, bring your parents. Shout out my parents, by the way. My mom and dad, uh, I can never shout you guys out enough. And thank you for your continued patience and support and inspiration. Uh, my mom and I are actually co-writing a song right now uh, to be uh, to be explained at a later date. <laughs> I think it's going to be uh, pretty, pretty fresh. Okay, so Halifax, we're going to see you right December 26th at Hopyard Free Show. Great food, great local beer. Yeah, 4 p.m. That's That sounds like a definite plan. Okay, well, be good. Stay tuned for a lot of exciting things in the new year. Snake Horse Pizza, Last Paper Route, new music, new podcasts. Oh, Dave Hallett and I are working on a little secret podcast, too. Oh, wow. There's a lot of ex- exciting things happening. I'll be back with one more podcast at least before... Uh, 2018 is done okay now it's time to catch up with my dear old pal Alex Kenny about whom I cannot give enough love about does that that sentence sound correct (laughs) about whom yes I can't give you enough love Alex and he knows it all this guy this guy that's honest I do this podcast for me I mean it's for you but it's for me so <laughs> thanks for entertaining me. This is great recording live in Vancouver at Alex's house with his amazing cats who are just the cutest. And Alex has a great podcasting setup for his own podcast. We have a technical, which we get into. And, and I highly recommend checking that out if you want to explore some different genres of music. Uh, so yeah, please enjoy this chat between two old nerdy pals. I love this dude, and it's a pleasure to finally have him on the podcast. I assure you, it's gonna be awesome! Start interview with Wonder Boy music from Sega. That's my note there. Okay. <laughs> Let's do this! You can outport it in eighth. <laughs> Usually in wave format. <laughs> That's the sound of two chums having a great time. Cheers to you, Arlex. Cheers to you, SJ. Welcome. I'm so glad to be here. It's another weekend at Bergie's on the road, aka weekend at Arlex's, live from Vancouver, BC. 
to be released at a later date, but we're alive. You're alive, right? Last I, time I checked. I, I don't know. You'd have to probably take my pulse. I'm feeling a little jet lagged, <laughs> tired right now. Been on the road, which I know you know that feel well. Yeah. In the midst of your tour. Yeah, yeah. I want to get all into that. I just want to give the listeners a quick, uh, you know, breakdown of who is sitting next to me. One of my oldest and greatest chums, besties. Alex Kennedy, a.k.a. Arlex the Robot, DJ Supreme, friend beyond supremacy, and uh, a Doom Patrol expert. You flatterer. To the max. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the show, SJ. It's really nice. As a longtime listener of, of Weekend at Burgies and Word Burglar, I, I am so honored to get to oh. hang out with you and chill. You know the honor is mine. And also, you're a longtime listener of putting up with my crap our whole life. <laughs> <laughs> All those days after school on the paper route. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've been putting up with me a long time. Formative so times. Loved. And it's a two-way street on the <laughs> on the putting up with shit. But I'm so glad you get to be here in Vancouver and we had a little chance to hang out. We almost didn't on this trip, actually. It just so happened that your tour date here intersected with me being out of town in Los Angeles. But we managed to work it out in such a way that we would get a day to hang out. So that's just what we've been what we've been up to. And it's been a dream day. I mean, for the listeners at home, Alex and I basically it's been a dream date day for you and I. Like doing literally doing exactly what we did like twenty plus years ago. Record stores, comic shops, arcade, arcade, yeah. And then the nerd bar, which we didn't have when we were kids. Yeah, no, and and probably better that we didn't, since the last thing Halifax needed in the nineties was a couple of drunk thirteen year olds running around <laughs> so but shout out Stormcrow. so we've been to both their locations yeah do they have a they only have two they right? have the two locations in vancouver now the, the the one that we went to today is the the slightly more recent one that's opened up on broadway um i think that when and like the concept of a nerd bar is still to me like a bit of a novelty in that way where when they first opened up i remember being a little like i don't know like this seems kind of pandering and weird but now i'm kind of into the vibe there it helps that it's actually like a cool bar that if you took away all the nerd stuff, there would still be like decent food and a good beer list and like a nice atmosphere and good location. So having that stuff and then just tossing in like, oh, there's some cool decorations and like they do nerd karaoke and like you can play board games and stuff like that, I think makes it a cool experience. If it was a shitty bar and had all like the nerd stuff, I'd be like, whatever, I don't care, but. Yeah, no, they heighten it. And the little touches too, like the Beyonder from, or not the Beyonder, whatever that thing was called. The Beholder. The Beholder from D&D manuals. Uh, some D&D heads out there will know. Coming out of the wall, the Rancor coming out of one wall, the Mass Effect bad guy that we don't know his name coming out of another wall. Like, it's it's very impressive establishment yeah. for all, and encompassing, you know, many things nerdy. And yeah, it's it's... It's not an observation that is uh, unique by any means, but it's true. Like, the nerds have taken over in yeah. so many ways. Well, if you think about it, and I was thinking about this this year, you and I met on the very first day that I came to the junior high school that we went to, Gorsbrook, shouts out, Halifax. Yeah. Because you were wearing an Infinity Gauntlet t-shirt, and I went over to talk to you, and I was kind of a dick when I was a kid, but one way or the other, <laughs> no, the point were, being... We were all dicks. Yeah. It's a junior high school. Everybody's kind of a dick, but it was not... A, uh, in retrospect, perhaps not the best opening gambit, but uh, I was thinking about it because you were wearing that shirt. That's why we met, like, sort of the beginning of our friendship. The very first words I ever spoke to you were about Infinity Gauntlet, 
there's an infinity gauntlet movie for all intents and purposes, like a big budget billion dollar movie in movie theaters this year, 2018. Like that's wild to think about. It's insane. Yeah. And again, today we were walking by the bus and there's like a venom ad on the bus, which is crazy. So seeing, seeing all that stuff, uh, you know, get to where it is now and even music too. I mean, you know, music and comics have both have been a part of both our lives forever. And I mean, that's a basis of our friendship too, our love of both and just on um, amongst many other things. Yeah. I think it's one of those things too, where it's like, we have a shared appreciation for a lot of history, but I think that both of us have put a lot of emphasis on the idea of, I don't just want to like old stuff and I need to be able to like engage with new music, new comics, new nerdy pursuits, new video games. Like as much as I know that, you know, you and I both really love playing classic games. We love listening to classic records. You know, we love reading old runs of comics from back in the day. It can't just be that. Like if you have that as your primary diet, you just start to lose touch with things in a way that I find a little unsettling. And like, it's an impulse that I constantly, I find I have to fight. I don't know. Do you ever get that thing where you just feel like listening to stuff you're already comfortable with and you don't want to look for new stuff and you sort of have to force yourself out of that habit? Yeah, it's funny. I was in a... Uh, bar the other night with touch and they were playing all 90s hip-hop records and it was some mm-hmm. stuff i knew so well from souls of mischief to guru to wu-tang but i have not listened to those albums in years because i am constantly listening to new stuff and i'm always li- and i was like wow i literally haven't gone up and dug up like the first far side album in maybe 10 years mm-hmm. but i knew it so well as a kid so stuff like that i i, I need new stuff like new comics mm-hmm. every week yeah, new records, always checking for new stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I want to know what's out there and, and checking stuff. Um, but, yeah, let's get into you just were away. You were in L.A. for the weekend. What was yeah. happening? Uh, myself and my blogging partner, Bruce, went down to check out Cold Waves Los Angeles, which is the Los Angeles installment of an industrial music festival that started a couple of years ago in Chicago. Basically, uh, they did three editions of the festival this year. One in New York, one in Chicago, one in Los Angeles. For years, all they just did was uh, uh, Chicago. It's like sort of one of the American strongholds of industrial music, and there's lots of history there. And this year, they decided they wanted to take it on the road. So we had the option of going to any of those three dates sort of to to cover it for our website, idayudai.com. And we elected to go to Los Angeles because we have a lot of friends in L.A., and also because it would also afford us the opportunity to go to a wrestling show in Long Beach on Sunday night when New Japan Pro Wrestling was in town, which is kind of a nice bonus for us uh, going down there. And that's a huge thing. Kenny Omega, of course, yep. the Chrono Trigger-themed wrestling move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big nerds these days taking <laughs> that's, over. That's That's awesome. And so, yeah, you, with the music thing, you know, I know you love hip-hop, and, and obviously, like, hip-hop is, you know, my life. Mm-hmm. But you really, uh, your main music uh, passion mm-hmm. is like industrial yep. and EDM. Like, how would you, what would you describe that scene? Because I never know when I say, oh, my homie Arlex is a DJ. That is a blog. very good question. Um, for the longest time, Bruce and I just started calling it our thing. Like, just the thing that we're interested in. It's interesting because there is no good umbrella term for it. Like... Yeah, industrial is a pretty good one, but there's lots of stuff that we cover and that we like and that gets played in similar sorts of events and bands will play on the same kinds of bills that don't really fall under that rubric. So, you know, we we sort of start off every edition of our podcast. We have a technical saying, you know, we cover darker alternative music. So, you know, industrial music, dark wave, 
uh, EBM, uh, you know, goth rock, uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And it all sort of fits under the umbrella. The nice thing about that, too, is it also gives us kind of an out for covering whatever we feel like. But we try and keep it sort of limited to that sort of a slice of the alternative music pie because there's not a lot of other people out there writing about it and podcasting about it. There's a couple out there, uh, Cat vs. Bat do a great podcast out of Toronto, uh, Brutal Resonance is a great website, uh, you know, and there's t- there's a few others, but it's an underserved market for the number of fans that that stuff has globally. Um, so, you know, it's kind of our thing where we try to uh, cover stuff that isn't necessarily getting that coverage from other outlets. Yeah, now you named a lot of different genres there yeah. so i know edm what exactly is <clears throat> ebm ebm uh is a term that was coined in the mid 80s by the band front 242 um it stands for electronic body music the idea was that they were making um electronic music that uh was related to things like synth pop and electro pop in the craftwork vein but was more militant um and more aggressive and the idea was that it was electronic music to make your body move hence ebm um it's a scene that's had its ups and downs it's had a big resurgence over the last couple of years um a lot of artists that have more credibility in the techno scene have really picked up the banner of it and waved it um Geschaffelstein had a great record a couple of years ago that had a lot of nods to classic ebm and a lot of the classic artists like front 242 and nitzareb uh who were big deals in that scene in the 80s have done like very successful tours. Um, there's a weird thing where around the time when industrial got super popular for a very brief period in the nineties, some of those bands got to be on like Lollapalooza or do big tours with other bands. Nitzareb very famously opened up for Devesh Mode on a number of tours. Front 242 were on Lollapalooza, et cetera, et cetera. But then they all kind of just dissipated and went away. And now that they're coming back, like there's more, I think, of an appreciation for what they've been doing. But it's a kind of distinctive sound. Um, Like I said, you know, think of it in terms of it being like like a synth pop song, but more aggressive, more beat driven, more about a rapidly cycling bass line. And the genesis of a lot of of that music Mm -hmm. kind of comes from a lot of the same places that hip hop came from. Very much so. like original school industrial uh, came out of the UK and it was a lot of bands like Throbbing Gristle, Cabaret Voltaire, Test Department, um, who were very political, very art driven. But a lot of the artists that would sort of pick up that banner and carry it were very interested in the same kinds of things that a lot of early hip hop artists were interested in. Dub records. Um, there's the, all those famous stories about Africa Bambata playing like Kraftwerk records yeah. and like Gary Newman records. Nucleus. I, yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And so a lot of that stuff very much influenced a lot of the early uh, industrial stuff and especially in like sort of the, the sounds that would come to prominence in the mid 80s. Uh, Skinny Puppy, one of my favorite bands, classic Vancouver industrial band and is sort of one of the big names in the genre, you know, for decades now. If you listen to a lot of their early stuff, you can definitely hear that influence that I think comes from hip hop. They have some 12 inches and B-sides where like if you were to put Biz Marquee rapping on them or something like that, it wouldn't sound out of place. Yeah, yeah. So that sort of like classic electro style hip hop and early industrial and sort of mid 80s style industrial, there's lots of areas where I think they intersect. Especially, too, if you look at the kind of instruments that are being used to make that kind of music, 808 drum machines, TR-303 synthesizers, etc. Yeah, and I, I was always into, like, a lot of that early stuff, too. And, like, yeah. you know, I loved craft work, obviously. Like, now, Skinny Puppy, you bring them up. 
are they sort of like the first Canadian band to do this? And w- did they reach out further, like outside where they're, are they, they're kind of global, right? Like Skinny yeah. Puppy made it really big. They're a big deal on a global scale. Um, I just actually, this past weekend, got to see their singer Ogre perform a solo set with his band, um, which is kind of interesting. It's more of a rock-based thing than uh, uh, Skinny Puppy was or is. But, I mean, <clears throat> that band was really different on a lot of different records anyway, so there's no real, like, definitive Skinny Puppy sound. But uh, they they were not necessarily the first band, but they were definitely the biggest band. Them and another Vancouver band called Frontline Assembly were sort of, like, the two biggest acts to come out of Canada, but they're two of the most important bands in that movement, especially in the 80s and 90s, and ones that were hugely influential on almost every band that would sort of pick up that banner and run with it after that. So, I mean, Canada has always had a very, very strong history and a big influence on other artists that have come since in the genres of industrial and so forth. The great thing is that now in 2018, Canada still has a very strong scene with lots of really cool new bands. Um, Encephalon out of Ottawa are incredible. I love them. Uh, our buddy Scott Fox out of Ardensphere out of Edmonton, who's doing really interesting stuff and consistently pushing the boundaries of things you can do with beats and rhythm. Um, Canada has just a terrific scene right now with so many new artists, new bands. And people, I think, very much one of the parallels you can draw with hip-hop is that it is a DIY scene. Like, I know with Canadian hip-hop, people have to do it for themselves. The infrastructure to support people isn't necessarily there. So you have to be on your own hustle. You have to put out your own records. You have to promote them themselves. You have to book your own tours. So if I look at what you do... And I look at what the artists that we profile on Ida Udai and we interview and we talk to and are friends with, it's very much the same hustle. How can I make this happen myself without the support of a label, without the support of, you know, or the money that comes from having a record contract? You know, where can I find a means to do this? And it's that same kind of DIY ethic. Yeah. And I feel like that's, and I, I'm always fascinated whenever you're, throwing new bands my way to check out in in that scene i'm always fascinated and i see the parallels and i and i understand because yeah like canadian indie hip-hop they're both like seriously underrepresented uh genres on the radio or with the common you know your average person on the street like if you start talking to them about any of the bands you mentioned or maybe any of the like the bands that i work with people are like i'm who are these people how are they even getting by and i find it it's so great like with your blog with i die you die you giving exposure to these new bands and and everything. When I check out your blog, I'm like, well, I don't know half these bands <laughs> anyway, but if I was in this scene, you know, as an outsider, I'm like, it's very impressive what you got, you and Bruce are doing. So shout out to you guys for that. Thank you. And yeah, like, I guess what was your big like introduction, like as a kid? Cause I remember, you know, we'd be listening to a lot of the same stuff. And I remember you sharing like, you know, I remember you were really into the Crow soundtrack and stuff like that. That and was a big early one. New Order, me. probably Ministry. Yeah, Ministry yeah. was was pretty much the first step. Yeah. Getting the Crow soundtrack. They were the gateway. Yeah, they're the <laughs> gateway. Getting the Crow soundtrack um, and really getting familiar with a lot of the artists on that, getting into I Skinny I love that Puppy. soundtrack, too. Yeah. It was a dope soundtrack. And it had one, um, a Nine Inch Nails covering Joy Division, which like opened a lot of doors for me in terms of bands I was interested in. Um, and also had uh, My Life with the Thrill Kill called Song on it, which is the, an absolute classic, like a stone classic on it. So that opened a lot of doors for me. 
Um, additionally, uh, Ministry being kind of popular as sort of a crossover metal act really introduced me to a lot of music as well. I went through a period where, I, if you'll remember in high school, I was listening to almost exclusively like Nine Inch Nails, Ministry, and Skinny Puppy for a number of years. And hip-hop, too. Right? And hip-hop, too. I was getting <laughs> yeah. some hip-hop in there as well. But that's a lot of, you know, just as a function of us hanging out and being yeah. friends, I would get exposed to that stuff. But uh, <laughs> You'd you hear know, me ranting about someone. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, that that's sort of what my entry point was. And very much in the same way that, like, you find a thing, and I know you had the same thing when you first discovered the basement. You f have an interest in a thing, and the moment you start digging into it, it's like going down a rabbit hole, and just like you can't get enough of it, and you just need to keep finding it. One of the things I think is super fascinating now is that, for those of the folks that don't know, the basement was Rich Turfrey, uh, Rich Turfrey, Buck 65's radio show on CKDU, uh, the college radio station in Halifax, he would play the craziest records on that show. And we're not talking about just like records that were popular in the 90s. He had all this crazy obscure stuff. He was playing so much indie hip hop and like stuff that would become so foundational before anybody else had heard it. Like he was playing Wu-Tang stuff, you know, the moment Protect Your Neck came out, that 12 inch came out and he was playing it on the radio and he was playing all this other stuff. At a certain point, he was like, no more major label stuff. I'm only going to play indie hip hop. And that was such a huge resource. And this was pre-internet. So to have that lifeline and that window into a world of music that otherwise we wouldn't have had exposure to was a huge deal. Yeah, when he took that stance, I'd love to get him on here one day and just talk to him because that was a big deal when he had the independent, uh, when he just said independent only, and then yeah. just cut everything. That was unheard of and at the time, right? And you didn't even think, well, how can you even fill that? And yet every episode, you just hear the most and unique Canadian and independent content stuff. stuff a lot too. of CanCon, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, for those folks who are not listening to this in Canada, we have a law here that states that radio and TV have to have a certain amount of Canadian-produced content on them. If it's a Canadian radio station... Canadian television station, you have to show a certain amount of content that's produced in Canada. So if you are a hip-hop format radio show, your responsibility is to play between 10 and 30% Canadian-produced music that falls under whatever your format is. When I did college radio on CKDU, it was easy for me because Canada's always had such a great history and has had so many years of great records that I could draw from. But Rich, I'm still so impressed that he was able to find all that great Canadian hip-hop, especially in those indie days when he wasn't playing anything that was being played on the radio, you know, or on TV or anything like that. Like, he was he was a trailblazer. I bring him up because in those pre-internet days, you had to have somebody like that who was, like, had a college radio show or somebody who would send you a mixtape, you know, through placing an ad in, like, Industrial Nation magazine or something like that, which I remember doing back in the day, having people send me tapes in exchange for tapes really? of stuff I had. Yeah, yeah. So you put an ad. You send them a letter that basically says, you know, so-and-so living in this place, my interests are this and this, uh, tape for tape. And then yeah. they would send you a tape and you would send them a tape. And then eventually the internet starts to pick up. You make some friends that way. CD burners became a thing in like the mid to late 90s. So you could burn copies of CDs you had and exchange those with people you had. You know, all kinds of stuff like that. There was always sharing going on. Yeah. And I remember I was just talking with someone about the getting Mystery Science Theater tapes. Like mm -hmm. shout out our homie Dave Howlett. We used to get the MST3K tapes and Mr. Show videotapes mm -hmm. sent in because somebody knew some guy who was in like Boston or Michigan or something and had would like send up tapes. Fun stuff. And hey, let me let me yeah. tell a quick story about that. And this is this will be a sort of like a weird dated thing. Back in the mid nineties, 
when I was first getting into news groups like Rec Music Industrial, um, you know, all dot fan dot nine inch nails. These was, would have been like bulletin boards. Uh, yeah, those on... are, this was a uh, Usenet or not Usenet, um, news groups, which was a thing. So like this is like Internet, internet 1.0 or whatever. Yeah, very early. Internet 0. 1. <laughs> but they were like message boards essentially okay. back in the day. But uh, uh, there was always talk about this this Nine Inch Nails video that could never be released. And it was because it was too, like, the record label paid for it and then was like, oh, we can't show that. It's too extreme. It's too crazy. The Broken video, um, which was directed by Peter Christofferson, uh, Sleazy Pete, one of the original founders of industrial music uh, in a band called Coil, who are hugely influential. You're dropping so many names. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm I, sorry. I, no, I love it. Uh, no, yeah. but I'm like, I don't know any of these people. <laughs> Sleazy Pete. <laughs> Sleazy Pete. Sleazy Peter Christofferson. How have I lived my whole life without hearing of Sleazy Pete? He's an influential artist. He designed a bunch <laughs> of album covers for Peter Gabriel, actually. Like, he was a, a huge designer, video director. He made, like, videos for Van Halen wow. and Hanson. But he made this video for Nine Inch Nails that the record label saw. And there was like, there's no way we can put this out. This is too crazy. It's too extreme. And so for years, there was all these bootlegs of it going around. That was the only way you could see it. So I sent 25 bucks <laughs> through the mail to a guy in, like, of Oregon or did. something like that to send me, like, a shitty eighth-generation bootleg of it. <laughs> that I remember getting in my house and being like, my parents can't know that I have this. I could get in trouble for owning this video. It's illegal, which it wasn't. It's illegal to own this video and putting my VCR and watching it like late at night when my parents were asleep and being like, <laughs> this is the most extreme crazy shit. I bring this up for two reasons. One, it's Nine Inch Nails. Trent Reznor has a fucking Academy Award. <laughs> like, It's so weird to think about that. Two, you can watch that on YouTube now. If you wanted to watch the broken video, you could go right now and search Nine Inch Nails broken movie and you could find it to watch streaming on the internet within like 10 seconds. Ah. So weird to think about like the difference between then and now. And I don't think that then was better. It's just an interesting dichotomy between the experiences of you and I growing up being interested in all the weird, obscure music stuff that we're interested in and kids now who have so much access to it. I think that now the problem is less finding things as it is knowing what to look for you and i were always in a position of well um anything i can find i'm going to devour because it's my interest whereas i think kids now when you have eight million things being shoved at you having that filter and knowing okay i'm going to spend time and effort on this and this as opposed to the 20 zillion other things that people are pushing at me that's got to be the challenge now yeah i feel like a big challenge now and i think you know, kids are still super selective and smart with what they're taking in and enjoying and everything. But I think the problem with having so much stuff is a lot of things aren't given a chance mm -hmm. because it's like I've used this analogy even with rental patient. Like back in the day, you'd rent a video, you take it home. Well, you're stuck with it. So chances are you're going to watch the whole movie. Yeah. Now, if you start watching something on Netflix, five minutes into it, if you're like, and eh, this sucks, you turn it off. Yep flip on, find something else because it's all right there at your fingertips. Back then it was like, well, I'm going to have to trudge through this crap and who knows, maybe there'll be, you know, a diamond in the rough that I'm going to discover. And I think now where you're, they're getting so inundated with music and videos and comics and whatever it is, you can so easily just abandon, you look at something for two seconds, I don't like this, move on to the next thing. Yeah. It, it, it develops a weird, almost ADD uh, entertainment consumption uh, that you don't have the patience. Like I know for me, like if I'm reading a book, I may not like it until I get to like the fourth or fifth chapter. And then it's like, oh, this is great. And yep. I, 
I don't know if the entertainment patience is there, right? Yeah. No, uh, I, I'm sure it is, but it's just I've for us, there's a lot of crap that I'd like. I'd never go back and rewatch that or reread that or replay that. Mm-hmm. But I did it once and it's helped me appreciate other things more. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a double-edged sword. Like on the one hand, I don't miss lack of options for things like video games and, and, you know, access to music that I'm interested in because, you know, there were so many years where I would just like, you would send away for records you'd never even heard and you had no means of knowing what they sounded like just because somebody told you it was dope. Yeah. Or because you read a thing that sounded cool and then you get the record and realize you weren't into it. Well, fuck, that's 20 bucks that I don't have anymore and I'm stuck with this CD or this, you know, tape or whatever that I don't like. That said, you know, I, I think now the big double-edged sword is the idea of access versus the ability to focus in on certain things. Um, I think you and I ended up consuming a lot of garbage because it's what was accessible. Yes, yeah, so we watched would have a lot of like, shows. I read I so many about. bad comics. Yes, just exactly. It was like these are comics. I'll read them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm gonna listen. To, I'm gonna watch this shitty movie because yeah. like there's nothing else to watch. Yeah, you know. So that was bad. But also having this sort of culture of too much to consume is also a bad thing. So finding that happy medium between yeah. the way things are now, the way things used to be, I don't know. It might just be grass is always greener stuff, too. Like, yeah, exactly. I do think there's value in being denied. Yeah. Like going to the video store and the movie you want to watch isn't there. So you're forced to choose something else. Mm-hmm. So, but I mean, all that said, talking about consuming and things we love, you are like the number one Doom Patrol fan Mm -hmm. I have ever met. And recently it was announced, for those who don't know, Doom Patrol is a long-running DC comic. We have the foremost expert that I know (laughs) in my life, so I'm going to call you the foremost expert in the world, because in my world of comic book loving, you are the number one Doom Patrol guy. (laughs) Thank you, I appreciate that. And uh, It's nice to feel appreciated. Well, now that we've got you here and we can explain to people who may not be familiar what Doom Patrol is, to me, Doom Patrol is almost like DC's X-Men before Mm -hmm. X-Men. Well, funny that you would bring that up. Okay. Because the whole legendary story was that Arnold Drake, the guy who created the Doom Patrol along with Bruno Bruno Premiani, the artist that he worked with, Arnold Drake is a guy who is kind of known for being a Silver Age writer. Like, he worked on, uh, he created the Doom Patrol. He created uh, Dead Man, the DC character. He worked on some Challenger stuff. Um... Bruno Premiani, mostly famous for having done Doom Patrol, but also worked on, like, early Titans, like, pre, like, the the classic Titans from the 80s that everybody knows about. Like, the back Perez, was, like, Wolfman stuff yeah, where yeah. everyone knows. Yeah. Like, the super early Silver Age stuff from the sure. 60s that was, like, you know, Superboy and Kid Flash, you know, Wonder Girl. Um, he claimed that Stan Lee ripped him off for the X-Men because he was writing and creating the first Doom Patrol stories. And he says that all the people who he knew who were freelancers in the industry must have told Stan about what he was working on. And Stan being the sort of omnivorous, you know, creator of things went, yeah, okay, uh, a team of misfits who are hated by the society they seek to protect. And their leader is a genius who sits in a wheelchair because he doesn't have use of his legs. Like there are similarities. I don't think they're that close, to be honest. Like, I think that you could have easily come up with similar concepts. Like, Drake, I think, even softened his stance on it as he got older. But there's lots of interviews with him where he claims that Stan Lee ripped him off. I don't think there's that much truth to it, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, and I believe Stan Lee got inspired by X-Men by there was a movie called, like, Cyclops, The Man with X-Ray Vision. And I think (laughs) that's where he got 
Cyclops? Yeah, or maybe it wasn't called, it was just the man with x-ray vision, whether it was called Cyclops or not. But I think that's where he credited, you know, that's how I got the idea for a school of mutants who are outcasts of society. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest, I'm a way bigger Doom Patrol fan than I am an X-Men fan. X-Men's a better premise. Okay, well, why do you like Doom Patrol? All right, so the Doom Patrol, to me, um, I got into it through our good pal Dave Howlett. And what are the Doom Patrol? Just so yeah. people... The who... Doom Patrol is a team of superheroes. Um, their leader is the aforementioned Chief, a dude who is a super genius uh, who's in a wheelchair because he doesn't have use of his legs but makes up for it with his amazing intellect. Uh, the original team was Robot Man, Cliff Steele, a race car driver who was in a terrible accident and his brain survived, but his body died. And so they placed his brain inside of a robot. Um, and sort of the whole premise of the early stories is that it's not an indestructible robot body. He would get messed up and burnt and exploded all the time. And they would just put him back together, you know, at the end of the issue so that he could go out and have it's another adventure. It's kind of like a crappy robot body. Yeah. That's what I've always liked about robot It's man. like a tin can, yeah, right? Yeah. Like there's all these issues of him getting like crushed and torn in half or, you know, there's a famous story where like, he keeps having to tear off his own limbs to get out of booby traps that have been left for him in this <laughs> island. So at the end of it, it's literally just his body rolling around. But his Love brain has somehow remained intact. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Elastigirl, this is pre The Incredibles. So, you know, that name comes from the, the 60s, who originally had growing and shrinking powers. And then at one point they were like, we called her Elastigirl. And they basically said, okay, yeah, she's also got like Reed Richards powers, like stretchy powers. She was a movie star who was uh, exposed to, like, uh, a terrible gas that gave her these strange powers. <laughs> you know, just, like, 60s stuff. And yeah, like, the negative... gas made her elastic. Okay. Yes. And the negative man, uh, who was a test pilot named Larry Trainer, who was exposed to x-rays, and they gave him this horrifying condition where... Um, he was irradiated and he had to wrap himself in special bandages like a mummy to keep from irradiating everybody around him, but could project this negative being from his body. The negative man who, while it's outside of his body, he's comatose and just lying there, but it could fly around and do all kinds of stuff. That was the original Doom Patrol back in the 60s. Just the four of them. Yeah, just yeah. the four of them. And all of their adventures were sort of about how, you know, everyone hates the Doom Patrol because they're crazy freaks, but, you know, they still fight to, you know, save everybody. And very famously, <laughs> the last issue of the original series, they sacrificed their lives to save a small fishing village in Maine. That was like they killed off the entire team and said that's the end of the Doom Patrol. Like then that was their heroic choice to save this tiny little village of people from, you know, a, a missile. Um, and it was, you know, a crazy thing to have happen at that time. Later on, they brought the characters back. There's many other runs. The Morrison, uh, Grant Morrison Doom Patrol run from uh, the late 80s and 90s is very famous and is probably my favorite run on any comic ever. Um, what was it about that, about Morrison's take? Um, that was when Morrison started getting really crazy. Like, if you're a fan of Morrison now, know that when he first came on the scene and started doing stuff like he does now with sort of this this property that had been sort of like in limbo. Like there was a Doom Patrol series ongoing. He took it over with issue 19. It has so been, this was around 88, 89? Around maybe? that era, yeah. yeah. Okay. So essentially Grant Morrison picks up a comic that, you know, it had some nice Eric Larson artwork. Like there had been some interesting things done with it. But our boy Larson. Yeah, your boy Larson. He was he was a Doom Patrol artist in his day. Yeah. But I uh there hadn't really been much traction with it because there was nothing to set it apart the doom patrol was just a collection of guys at that point and what 
Morrison, and even in his book, uh, Super Gods, if you've ever read it, he talks about taking on that book and saying, I wanted it to be a weird comic. I always liked how weird the original Doom Patrol stories were. They were fighting these crazy vin- villains like, you know, the animal, vegetable, mineral man and General Immortus and all these other crazy characters. that never What is re- his power? If I can just stop. He you. can transform into any animal, vegetable or mineral. Why would you choose like a carrot and when you could, could be like, like a velociraptor? Well, sometimes <laughs> he would choose combinations of those things. So he'd be like half dinosaur, half made out of diamond, half um, palm tree, I guess. I, don't know. <laughs> I love animal, vegetable, mineral man. General Immortus, like the immortal villain, kind of like a cut rate Vandal Savage. Yeah. So, so it was Morrison, crazy stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, he wanted to pick that up and just be like, these comics were crazy, even for the Silver Age. I wonder if I can do that in the 80s and 90s. And he did. And he made it wacky. That's where like Flex Mentallo comes from. And he kind of set, I think, the modern standard for what the Doom Patrol is. And I think every series that's come after it has kind of relied on that, with the exception of the John Byrne years, where he was like, I don't like that Graham Morrison stuff. It's too weird. I want to take it back to the 60s and produce a really boring 20-issue Doom Patrol series. That's weird. I forgot John Byrne took over Doom Patrol. Because it's not super memorable. That was like in the 2000s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was when Byrne went back to DC and he did like Lab Rats, or as we call it, Labrats. Labrats, yeah. You listen to the Jay Bone episode of this podcast. Shouts out to Jay Bone, who did a great cover for a recent Doom Patrol omnibus. Oh, I I haven't even seen that. Yeah, yeah, I'll show it to you. It's right up on the shelf. That's amazing. He did a really nice cover for it, and I know he's a classic Doom Patrol fan. Shouts out to Jay Bone. Yeah, Jay Bone. And Kieran, who was on our last episode, I seem to remember you visiting me and we, mm-hmm. when I was working at the Snail at Fan Expo, and you were on the hunt for Doom Patrol Masterworks, I think. And did Kieran score one for you? Yeah, I was. What I was actually looking for at that time was, um, and old school heads were know this. Um, you used to be able to find these unofficial guides to various comics, and they would always have a cool cover. These particular ones for the Doom Patrol had sort of like a rundown of every issue, so they'd tell you who did like, you know, who was the inker on this issue. Here's a summary of the plot. Here's a picture of the cover. And, uh, you know, here's what the backup story was and who drew it and uh, some notable things like, oh, there's a letter on the letters page from this, you know, future creator or whatever. And these guides were things that you could find. They were comic-sized, and they would always have a cool cover. And the two Doom Patrol ones that I found at that convention, I think Kieran helped me with them, were had covers by John Byrne, like, back in the day. Wow. And those so are super fun to look at now. He was definitely a fan. Now, there's been a more recent Doom Patrol series that's going on right now mm-hmm. with Gerard Way from yep. Our Chemical Romance. Yeah, my chemical romance. My chemical. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was talking about our chemical romance yeah. here. Oh, yeah. Yes, but, I got gotcha. you. But I my chemical up. romance, yes. So that series has been coming out now. And are you? How do you find that one? Is that? I'm enjoying it well enough. It's got really nice artwork by Nick Darrington. He draws a hell of a Doom Patrol. Yeah, the art's awesome. I will say this. Um, I feel like a lot of what Gerard Way has done in comics, like with Umbrella Academy, was always very inspired by like Grant Morrison. And it's him kind of trying to do his own riff on the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol. He uses a lot of the characters, introduces his own characters that kind of have a similar vibe to like the 90s Morrison Doom Patrol characters and stories. It works pretty well. It's come out so sporadically. It's very hard for me to stay invested in it because I feel like by the time I'm sort of like, all right, I'm kind of feeling this, getting into these characters was the story. Oh, it was six months between issues. 
Yeah. And that's a huge pain for me. The 12th issue we're still waiting on at the time of our recording this. And that might be the last issue of the series where it's just like, well, that was a lot of potential. Like, I don't know how much of it got realized. Well, they're going to have to do something because they've just announced, and this is what why I want to talk about Doom Patrol, because they've announced a Doom Patrol TV series yeah. that's coming out. So uh, as a fan of Doom Patrol, are you okay to talk about this? I'm a little worried, to be honest. <laughs> um, of course you are. Look, everything about the casting I'm super happy about. Um, Timothy Dalton is the chief. I think that's awesome casting. I'm a huge fan of Timothy Dalton what from his Bond years. Bond, yeah. Uh, yeah. And also a couple of years ago, he's on a TV show called Penny Dreadful that I really enjoy. Oh, I never watched that. Yeah, it was really good. He was awesome on it. Brendan Fraser is doing the voice of Robot Man. Um, Alan the Mummy Tudor. Guy? Yeah, the Mummy Guy. And who also may or may not have a brother who worked at Sobeys in Halifax. Yeah, that's never been clear to me. See previous episodes of this podcast where I think uh, Mark Palermo shares a tale about that. Uh, that's a pretty funny, uh, you know, editor's note, asterisk. <laughs> See previous episode for more information on Brendan Fraser, Fraser's brother yeah. who worked at Sobeys. Alan Tudyk's going to be on it. Um, Alan who? Alan Tudyk. How the many? <laughs> I prefer Alan Fordick. Oh. Um, I'm so immature. It's all good. I'm <laughs> sure nobody has ever made that joke before. <laughs> Poor Alan Tudyk. But he's going to be on it as a villain, Mr. Nobody. <laughs> like, there's there's some cool things about it. And the pictures that have come out of the costumes look great to me. Like, they don't look super redesigned and, like, weird and shitty. They look like the Doom Patrol should look as far as I'm concerned. So I'm happy about that. Nice. Now, this isn't in the CW universe, so not with, like, the other shows like Flash and... It's in continuity with the Titans TV show that's coming out, which is part of what has me worried because everything I've seen about that Titans show looks terrible. It's like the dark, grittier version. Well, and the whole... Did you see the trailer where Robin is like, yeah, fuck Batman? And I'm like, wow, that's some real edgy stuff there. Woo! Did he actually swear? He actually swore in the trailer and said, fuck Batman. And I was like, meh. Yeah, great. Super. That's what I go to a, you know, Teen Titans TV show for. Oh, man. Well, hey, speaking of Teen Titans, now, Alex, some of our uh, eagle-eared listeners (laughs) will note that Alex and I do a comic book together. With With our buddy Dave Howlett. Absolutely. The Last Paper Route, which we talk about on this podcast many times. Uh, So this is the first time we've sat down on this show to talk about the comic. And I mean, you know, listeners who, uh, you know, or anyone that, you know, has cared to know, uh, I've always said, well, yeah, Alex and I made this comic based on our adventures in paper rooting mm-hmm. as a kid, which was inspired uh, by, we did the zine when we had our roots every day after school. And, you know, this is, a, this is the truth. Like I had my root and your root was uh, literally, if you were on a grid of roots, your paper root was the root right next to mine. Yeah. Yeah. It was separated and, by one digit. Yeah. And you had that senior citizens building. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, do you have any stories, any memories uh, from those days? That- there was a dude who lived in that building who was living in his mom's apartment. And it was super sketchy, and I could tell he wasn't supposed to be living there. Because it was was all, like, seniors. Yeah, and it was assisted living, right? So it was cheap rent, and I'm sure that dude. So he would always give me, like, a decent tip and always just, like, you know, uh, you didn't see me. I wasn't here. (laughs) So this weird thing where I was like, yeah, okay, Mr. Whatever. Like, what trouble could you be getting up to? And then one day he was just gone, and I assumed they, they found out that he was living there under the radar and left. 
but he was like a 30 year old dude living in like this senior citizen's home and it was just the, one of those weird experiences when you're a kid and like you never think about like well of course you know everyone has their own home and can pay their own rent or whatever but you know it was just this very sketchy early experience with that and uh you know the senior citizens they were really cool to deal with at that time because you know they were always appreciative of having the newspaper because it was a real like lifeline to the outside world for a lot of them, mm -hmm. you know, being able to keep up with stuff. And in addition to that, you know, they like having a paper boy, you know, they like being able to talk to the paper boy. So when you come around to collect, they want to chit chat with you. Collection days would always take three times as long because I'd have to have a five to 10 minute conversation with everybody who came to the door. But like, yeah, they were cool. I loved that paper route. Yeah. Now, as your, you know, your close friend and, you know, fellow former paperboy, I know that those were very formative years mm -hmm. for, I think, both of us. And I think dealing with strangers, and I always tell people, like, you know, being able to, like, knock on strangers' doors and ask them for money or deliver their paper or build up these relationships with complete, uh, you know, adult strangers uh, really, I mean, I think helped me be able to deal with strangers throughout the rest yeah. of my life like do you is there anything that you look back on and say you know what i really learned these skills from my days as a paper carrier well for one thing um i think it taught me to have a lot of respect for kids with jobs yeah like <laughs> a lot of people i think you know didn't really think of the paper boy as doing like a job job but like you know you and i had to be there we had to do it we had to, yeah, we had to get up. hours you had yeah. to get it delivered exactly yeah, Saturday like morning. it was a yeah. real job that you and i had and oftentimes I felt like if we went to collect, like and it was usually some guy in his 20s or whatever would sort of like, you know, sort of blow you off like, oh, I don't have any money right now. Get me next time or whatever. And I have never been able to do that to a teenager like in any capacity ever since just because it's like, no, man, like you, a service was rendered. A product was delivered. That kid is on like people may not know this, but like we were essentially middlemen in the paper business. We paid for the newspapers we delivered. So if we didn't collect that came out of our pockets and occasionally they would send somebody around to get money from you. Like if you hadn't like, or if not enough money had been paid to the paper to pay for your allotment of newspapers that you delivered. Yeah, you would owe. You'd be like, they'd come by your house and say, oh, you owe 30 bucks. What? Yeah. what? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that would happen occasionally. So I think that's one of the things I learned from is just like respect for somebody who has a job and is doing their job, regardless of how old they are, if they're a teenager, if they're a senior citizen, one way or the other, that's one thing I took away from it. Um, the other thing I learned is that uh, music is, or uh, work is much easier with music <laughs> because, you know, I know you always had a mixtape. I always had a tape in my Walkman. Like you could do a lot of thinking and you could learn a lot about music just by having access to music while you were doing your work and it made it go faster. Oh yeah. You had to just keep buying new batteries for those Walkmans. Yep. Burn through those batteries like crazy. Yeah. Is there anything you really miss from those days? Not especially, no. Really? No. <laughs> I don't know, man. Like it wasn't a super well-paying like after-school job. Like I know kids who worked at like pizzerias and stuff like that who made better coin. But at the same time, too, it was also one of those things that you could do around school, right? Like after school, go do your paper route. At the end of your paper route, you know, uh, you could just go home, do your homework, watch Simpsons or whatever, and then, you know, hit the sack. Well, we used to watch Gargoyles. Yeah, we used to watch Gargoyles after the paper route. And also, you and I got a lot of talking about comics done over the years. Yeah. Like, you and I would hang out. Like, we'd go and do my paper route and then do your route immediately following and so when we were doing that, we would talk so much. We talk about comics and what we liked. And that's really like a lot of our friendship was formed by 
you and I hanging out. So I guess if there's one thing I miss is getting to hang out with you every yeah, day. Yeah, it was like two hours every day, really, from yeah. like walking home from school, picking up our papers, doing your route, my route, and like my route was a bit bigger than yours, so it was like it would you know, would be a bit more extensive. And I remember always having money like for comics and CDs and yep. whatever, like it was so good. And we did have crazy adventures like yep. there, which, you know, was what inspired the comics as well. So, you know, shouts out to Callum Johnson from strange adventures can never give him enough shouts. He's the, the best Thank origin you, of our original, like the last paper route comes from our original comic adventures and paper rooting, which was a backup story. We put in another comic we did you and I had done a comic that had a Watchmen parody in it, Who Killed Mr. Nice Guy. Do you remember yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we were so proud of that because, you know, we were 15 years old. We read Watchmen for the first time or whatever. And we're like, we should do this cool parody. and It'll be awesome with our own characters that <laughs> we had created when we were in junior high. And to us, it was like the most brilliant idea ever. Of like, we had made all these comics with our characters like Motorcycle Maniac and Chop Suey and Killjoy. Yeah, let's get into these. I want Cyber to... Psycho, all those characters. <laughs> and we thought it would be cool to do Watchmen with those characters. And so we did this crazy story that was a parody of Watchmen. And we just thought it would be cool to throw in like a little six or eight page backup story about our adventures on the paper route. And we gave copies to Cal at Strange Adventures. And I remember Callum saying like, yeah, the first story's good, but I really like the paper rooting story. You should do more of that. And that was the genesis of all of it. He was the one who said, like, yeah, okay, like the Watchmen thing, that's cool. But, like, that is the thing that he thought really spoke to our sensibility, and he was right. He was right, and we were speaking just the truth of what we know and what I've sort of tried to carry on with everything that I do, and I think you have as well. Yeah, very much so, very much so. So I want to talk about some of the characters we had when we were in junior high. Oh, man. Please. All right. So when you and I first became friends, you already had a stable of characters that we were making comics about. You were like, because I remember you were like, you wanted to draw and you were like, can you help me write some stuff? But, you know, you've always been a writer artist. I've always been more interested in writing, but I was trying to draw that at that time as well. I rapidly gave up because I wasn't good at it. You were um, great, man. Uh, that's nice of you to say. But you had Motorcycle Maniac. Yeah. You had Chop Suey, who's oh. like a ninja character. Yeah, so let's explain Motorcycle Maniac. Like, to me, I don't know. How would you sum him up as an out, you know? Well, I don't know that he ever rode a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> but he was a maniac. Yeah. Um, I think he was inspired partially by Cable, because I remember you had a whole thing with his son was a character in the strip. But I have this vivid memory of you had written this comic where it was Motorcycle Maniac versus Razor Ramon in the Fruit Loop Troop, in which it was just Motorcycle Maniac fighting those characters. And it was, like, my favorite stuff because it was literally just, like, you freestyling and, like, you know, whatever happens next. Well, then Motorcycle Maniac does this. Then Razor Ramon shows up and he gets beat up, you know, stuff like that. And it was awesome. And I, those comics, like, I remember them so vividly because they did really just feel like somebody who was passionate about wanting to do comics just doing whatever they felt like. Ah, oh, thanks. And they were done on loose leaf and mm -hmm. stapled. And then I would just pass them out and they'd get passed around the school. Yeah. And sometimes they'd find their way back to me. Sometimes I never saw them again. All right. So can Teachers we explain? Teachers threw them out. Like, oh, yeah. Infinity Wart. Oh, man. Okay. So there was Motorcycle Maniac, just the stable of characters. There was Chop Suey. Monty. Monty of the Multiverse, who kind of had like a... 
He's kind of like an aardvarky guy with glasses. I don't know. I would just draw these, like, faces and then bodies of characters and then give them names. And yeah. Then... So there's Monty. There was um, Gilly and Silly. Gilly and Silly, who were just kind of weird little oddballs. Elves. Elfy creatures. Um, the characters I introduced were Killjoy, who was one of Santa's elves who had gone bad. <laughs> uh <laughs> And uh, Cyber Psycho, right? Cyber Psycho was another one. Of those. All of our characters problems. were something who was a maniac or a psycho. <laughs> a crazy or, you know, doctor. Crazy, <laughs> crazy lady. We did. We had crazy lady, yeah, we did Cyber crazy Psycho, lady. and motorcycle mania. Yeah, we were obsessed with that. <laughs> yeah. Not a, uh, not a sensitive depiction of mental health in no, those days. No. But uh, Infinity Ward was We weren't born your... woke. Yeah, no. Uh Infinity War was, I think, your idea. We should do an Infinity War-like comic with all our characters because Infinity War was a big Marvel thing at that time, which is a crossover for every Marvel character. And so we did it with all of our characters, and we produced a five-issue series of just these one-off comics that you and I shared writing and drawing duties on. I don't remember anything about the plot except that we had a character who was a parody of Doctor Doom named... Rodcod mood. <laughs> and we kept his identity a secret. And we got kids at school like so invested, like, who is Rodcod mood? Who is it gonna be? And there were so many times when we would be like, All right, it's this guy, and then we'd fake them out, and it turned out that it wouldn't be that guy. And we had an issue that we sold. We went and we photocopied it. It was our very first mass-produced comic, so that we could sell it to kids at the school so they could find out the true identity of Rod God Mood. <laughs> we were enterprising, and I think we only sold it for like 50 cents, or yeah. maybe it was a dollar. I don't know. It was, it was enough that I remember we made like a small amount of profit off of it. That was, yeah, right. Rodcod Mood, and he turned out to be Tricycle Maniac. Yeah. Who was Motorcycle Maniac's son, son, of course. From the future. <laughs> so Obviously, if, his son's named Tricycle Maniac. Yeah, once again, <laughs> this is where the cable thing comes in. <laughs> but yeah, Motorcycle Maniac was like half Lobo, half Cable, half just like a maniac. And I originally got the name because there was... This is kind of embarrassing to admit, but it was a honeycomb commercial. And there used to be this character in honeycombs i think called like the honeycomb kid and mm -hmm. there'd be these ads and i remember this one car like this commercial was on during cartoons over and over again where these kids are sitting around in like some clubhouse enjoying their honeycombs and all of a sudden this biker on a motorcycle crashes through the wall and they're like oh no it's the motorcycle maniac and i've never been able to find this commercial but I guess that had, like, left a major impression on me. So I just used the name later for my comic character. But, yeah, yeah Infinity Wart. The plot, there was also another character you forgot. Lukewarm. Ah, yes, Lukewarm. <laughs> yeah. When, was Papa Wheelie around this time? Papa Wheelie. Oh, wow. So the, the Infinity Wart was someone would get this, instead of an Infinity Gauntlet you would get this wart, and the wart was like the most powerful thing in the universe, yeah. of course. The star brand, if you will. Yes, but if you touched someone and passed on a wart, you know, you would pass on the infinity wart. And I believe there was a battle throughout the cosmos to see who could get, this <laughs> who could wart. get the infinity wart. And Monty of the Multiverse was the key, and Lukewarm became his guide, and he sort of went through our universe of crazy characters, and... Yeah, we got to dig those up because I'm sure... Do you still got, have any of them? I have a handful of them kicking around, so maybe I can find them and scan yeah. them and, and post them somewhere. That's pretty funny stuff. Yeah. Although, you know, honestly, like, when I read stuff by Tom Scioli, 
Like, that is what it reminds me of. Like, if you read his comics, they do feel like the comics we made when we were in junior high because it's just like, what would be a cool thing to have happen? All right, that happens. Like, he's just has so much crazy inspiration. And when you're a little kid, you don't understand, like, how stories are supposed to be structured or, you know, things. You haven't learned anything. So there's, yeah, obviously it's like there's a lot of clunky craziness and things don't, net like, subplots that go nowhere and things that don't necessarily mean anything that you put in because you think it's funny or stupid or whatever. But I love that stuff because it genuinely feels like a real expression of, like, just pure creativity. His stuff reminds me of that. Capra kind of reminds me of that. Just those comics made by people who seem like they're just generally going like, all right, what am I going to do with my characters? This. This is what happens. Then another other thing happens. Then another crazy thing happens. I love that. Yeah, just the pure flow of ideas and silliness. And it just makes for... I don't know, a more entertaining read. Yeah. You really make, I've got to dig up on these issues. But yeah, so we did this comic with the Watchmen parody, Who Killed Mr. Nice Guy or whatever. I can't remember who the other characters were in it. but Or it was like Mr. Nice Guy all of a sudden, like Motorcycle Maniac and everybody were at this funeral for this character who we'd never shown before. Yeah. And, and then, you know, we, of course, were carrying all these histories in our heads when we were making the comic, but someone reading this is like, who's this guy with the bucket on his head? <laughs> <laughs> I believe we also had a character. I'm trying to remember what his name was. He was asleep all the time. Do you remember that guy? Oh, yeah. For some reason in my head, he's the same character as Papa Wheelie, but no, Papa Wheelie's the dude who had a bicycle. <laughs> it was always popping wheelies. Papa but wheelie. he was also Italian. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, wow. I got to find this stuff. Okay. All right. Thank uh, so you. An Italian all. bicyclist is our hot, <laughs> the hot character for 1993. Oh, wow. Well, thank you to all the listeners who have been, who've been tuning into this incredible flashback. Uh, this little, this incredible trip down memory lane with my oldest pal. Um, so it's so great to be here in Vancouver. You've mm -hmm. been out, you've been out here a long time now, right? Yeah. I think I moved here like the year after you moved to Toronto from Halifax. Yeah, so you and I have been away from Halifax, both of us for a long time. It's crazy. So what do you find are the similarities to Vancouver and Halifax? Like, do you find uh, a lot There's of... There's a lot of people from Halifax here. <laughs> really? Yeah. There's tons of people from the East Coast here. I mean... A lot of people leave Nova Scotia for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the primary ones is that the time you and I left, it didn't feel like there was a lot of opportunities for young people. Um, I was working a service industry job. You'd been working retail. And as much as those were like, the people I worked for were very good to me. I know The Strange Adventures is great to you. There was also the feeling of like, if we wanted to really expand and grow and try different stuff, we had to go elsewhere, at least to try. And I know lots of people, you know, leave the place they come from and then come back after having had the experience, you know, that they, they know what they like and they're ready to, you know, build a life for them in the place they come from. You and I think both had a similar experience of we put down roots in the places we went to. So even though Halifax is still like our spiritual ancestral home, we've also built up new communities and gotten new opportunities and had the experiences in a new place that makes it like, it's a place you've lived for a while and you have memories there and you have friends there. You have an ecosystem that supports your pursuits there. So, you know, in a lot of ways, uh, I feel like you and I have had very parallel experiences leaving Halifax for a major Canadian city, just unfortunately on separate coasts. Yeah. And it's, it's, 
you know, when we hang out, it's like nothing, you know, no time has passed. Listeners are like, oh, <laughs> listen to these, you guys, get a room. Guess what? We have a room. <laughs> We're in a room right now. Nice I love room. this setup. So this is what you use for your podcast, yep. I Die, You Die. Yeah, we have a technical as the podcast. I Die, You Die is the website. Yes. Check it out, idieudie.com. We have a technical. You can find it on iTunes and Stitcher and Google uh, Music and Spotify. It's on there as well. Just search for We Have a Technical. Lots of talk about music that you may not care about, but I also like to think that we uh, we try and make things a little bit accessible for a lot of folks who may be interested in finding out more about that stuff. Absolutely. So. And you guys have been doing that podcast now for a few years, Like right? five years, yeah. Wow. And it's you and Bruce. Yeah. And you've got the Patreon going. Mm-hmm. and yeah, Patreon.com slash idiudai if you want to check it out. And you get to go to all these festivals and mm-hmm. everything as well. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's awesome to see how well you've been doing. And this Thank is not far from the last time you will be on this podcast. I appreciate but. you saying that, SJ. You know that I'm incredibly proud of you. That anytime I see that there's new Word Burglar stuff out, I tell all my friends, check out the new Word Burglar. You're going to love it. It's the best. It's so much fun. It's good music to listen to. And then people are like, well, you're the industrial music guy. Why do you listen to this rap for? Like, <laughs> Shut up. You don't know. You don't know. Oh, man. Well, one of the biggest things, thank you. And it's all, you know, it's, it goes right back at you. And I love when you tip me off to like great new bands to check out. Um, is there any new local Canadian bands that we should be checking out like in, in that scene? Um, I mentioned uh, Encephalon from Ottawa. They're incredible. Like, my joke with Bruce for the longest time has been, like, if we ever stopped doing I Die, You Die and we had to put it in the ground, the tombstone would read, listen to Encephalon. Like, their first album came out the first year we were doing the website. They have three records now. They're all amazing for different reasons. They are a fascinating band to me, and I'm still blown away that they're, like, as unknown as they are considering how good their material is. Check out Ivarden Sphere out of Edmonton. Uh, check out Wire Spine and Weird Candle out of uh, Vancouver. Um, there's a million more. Go to idiudai.com and you get some hot tips. But those are just the ones off the top of my head. Dope. And let's play a song. I want to play. I want to play an Encephalon song. Sure. Now, and I also want to play a song off an album that I found here. I'm just. It's kind of crazy bringing back home the whole Halifax to Vancouver thing. So I, I performed here in Vancouver. Uh, we're recording now, and it's uh, Tuesday. And I had a show here on Friday night. And I played at the Anza Club, which I will explain. I'm sure I'll explain in the intro to this episode. I'll I'll, fill you, I'll have filled you all in about it. But on my way to the show, I stopped into this uh, record store close to Audio Pile, and I was digging through the records, and then I just sort of kind of started perusing the CDs, and I saw the Sebutone CD, and it was five ninety nine. And of course, Halifax hip hop heads know. The Sebitone CD, I mean, you don't come across that every day. And for six bucks, I know I have a copy somewhere kicking mm-hmm. around. And I've got the original one I bought off 6-2 back in the day. Hashtag not bragging. But <laughs> but I found the CD, and it seems only right that I play a jam from that as well. So here we're going to play, uh, Alex, what jam should we play from Encephalon? Let's play uh, Calvin Klein of Slime. Okay, and then we're going to play some Sebutones. And then we're going to sign out for another episode of Weekend at Burgies. This time, Weekend at Arlex the Robots. A.K.A. Alex Kennedy, A.K.A. my cousin from another husband. (laughs) I love you, brother. Thanks for coming by. All right. We'll catch you guys soon. Peace. Peace.
stop and dwell on feeling rotten I don't think of you as gone Cause you'll never be forgotten Newport You'll always be considered the freshest And I know now that even when it sucks Life is precious
has been a presentation of the Modern Superior Media Network.